the American people will soon find out if the United States is going to war. Fires are raging across Brazil's Amazon rainforest. At the stroke of midnight, the U.S. hit China with tariffs on $34 billion worth of goods. Hurricane Dorian made landfall with wind speeds of 185 miles per hour. Multiple drones bombed Saudi Arabia's largest oil facilities today. 60,000 people have fled their homes in northeastern Syria. It's like these 500-year floods or 100-year floods. They're happening every other year. Anti-government protesters in Hong Kong have taken to the streets. The magnitude 7.1 quake was felt from Los Angeles all the way to Nevada. It is one of the worst escalations of violence on the Israel-Gaza border in years. The world seems so unstable, so insecure. Everything is changing way too fast. But there are some things that are steadfast, things that never change. God and His Word. Randy Reams is pastor of Kindred Bible Church in Nampa, Idaho. Join Pastor Randy now as he shares truths from God's unchanging Word. We are in Malachi. We're going to cover chapter 3, so you're going to have to, we're going to, the last verse of chapter 2, that's 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. So Malachi chapter 2, 17, through 3, 5. Okay, when you're there, please stand. It is our tradition to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're having trouble finding Malachi, um, that's the last book of the Old Testament, right before the book of Matthew. I'm reading this morning from the New American Standard. You have wearied the Lord with with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied Him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the message excuse me, the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as as a smelter, a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And when the offering of Judah and Jerusalem then will be pleasing to the Lord, as it was in the days of old, as in the former years, then I will draw near to you in judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppose the wage owner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. So allow me uh, to, again to set the stage a little bit, especially with this. Uh, as I said last time, as you as you come to the end of chapter 2, that last half of chapter 2, and chapter 3 of Malachi is one of the most difficult passages in Hebrew for the translators 
act. So it, I've done a lot of study and a lot of research to try to get clarity on this, but I need think the background leading up to here is important, okay? If you recall, um, all the way back in Ezra, okay, Zerubbabel chosen by God and he gets the king's signet ring and that's in, in Haggai at chapter 2 tells us that, but he comes back to Jerusalem Okay, and helps construct what is called the second temple, rebuild the temple, and renewed the sacrifices. Okay? And the people rejoice at that, tells us in Ezra 3, Haggai 2, Zechariah 2. Um, and the people reaffirm that they're God's covenant people, their covenant with God, Nehemiah 8 through 10. Okay? So, but realize, they believe when they're drawn back from captivity, because those passages that talk about God calling His people back, okay, they expected the Messianic age to begin, that is, the Messiah to come. Okay? But, but I guess somebody could have argued, yeah, but you know, look at Jerusalem, so then, of course, we have Nehemiah come, and he rebuilds those walls, reestablishes the priesthood, and something, but they're still under the rule of the Persians. The promised land is not paradise. It's not blossoming in the desert. They're not having overflows of plenty. Matter of fact, as we read on in chapter 3, it's the reverse. There's been sort of famine and difficult times. It's not what they thought, okay? Then the people, because of that, begin to wander mentally, not wander around, ponder maybe, maybe a better word, um, waver and vacillate in their faith. What they were expecting wasn't happening the way they thought it should. <clears throat> okay? So we, we learned before in Malachi chapter 1 that, that they thought these religious activities became burdensome. It didn't seemed to have some great spiritual effect. It, God wasn't accepting their affinity. We're, we're offering this and we're not getting anything out of it. And the evildoers, okay, are apparently having their way. That's where we begin with. It says, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. We're not seeing the evil punished, the wicked punished, okay? Um, there seems to be no difference in the good people and the bad people as far as what life's handing them. Okay? They did not see God as judging the wicked. This they interpreted as God calls evil good. The, the evil are good in His sight. Or, the other thing they draw from this, God's not just. Either, either God's liking the good stuff or the bad stuff, and calling it good in his sight. Or God's just not just, and he's letting the wicked get by with it. But there are four particular prophecies, predictions, in this passage that we will break down as we go through it, that God responds back to, how have you wearied him? And that you say, the people say, those who do evil are good in the eyes of God, or God's not just. Let me put it another way. If God is all good and all powerful, how come he doesn't do anything about the evil and suffering in the world? Have you ever heard that before? The answer to that is 
when you answer that great question, it's called the theodicy, or any accusation against God's character, you could call it that. Here are the four prophecies. Uh, I'll just give them to you, and then we'll go through them a little bit one at a time. Here you go. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then two, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Three, he will sit at the smelter and the purifier of sil- as, as a smelter and the purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then the fourth one was this, then I will draw near to you for judgment. Those are predictive prophecies. I know it seems a little vague, but the Bible tends to do that. It doesn't give you all the details, but they're there. So, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Who's you? Now, is that every individual living in Judah at the time? No. There were people that sustained or kept their righteous walk in the process, but it's, it's... the culture, the society, the Hebrew society living there as a whole, you are saying that the things that are getting the Lord, Yahweh, wearied. I'm getting sick of hearing you guys. That's my paraphrase. Okay? The word weary really means to toil or drudgery or to grind. And so I think most of us as parents is, you know, mom, 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 mom. Mom or dad, 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 and they dad or you know, and they and they won't because they want that candy bar or that cookie in the store, and they just hound it and it's just grinding, weary. I think that's the best way. I think at least I can relate to it as a parent and a grandparent. Would you just shut up? I'm not sure you'd never say that to your kid. I'm sure. Um, their attitude was testing the patience of God. How, wait a minute, wait a minute, how, how have we as a group, as a culture, we're in you? And again, I've already sort of put that in context, okay? Um, we don't see you doing what we think you should be doing. So therefore, they accuse God of something. Calling or seeing evil as good or being unjust, okay? And of course, the answer to that the Lord answers back, and when they do that, um, what's interesting is when, they, he, when he does it, they say, well, wait a minute, uh, why are we worried you? See, they don't see themselves as the evildoers. God looks at the evil people and sees that as good. He's, he's not just. But wait a minute, what you're accusing God of is evil. They, they don't see them. What do you mean? What are we saying? Okay, they, they don't see that. They're bored with their worship. Okay, they didn't treat marriage as sacred. That is, they defiled God's holy portion, the people. Okay, the Levites were preaching with partiality. They weren't preaching the whole truth, leaving out the parts that upset them or the people. Remember all that? And the people didn't want to hear him teach that stuff. But it's them out there that are evil. And why is it God doing something about them? Now, wait a minute. We read that you're bringing in lame, blind, and stolen animals to sacrifice to the Lord. But they're evil out there. You're just not doing anything about those guys out there. You better be glad he's not doing about anything about the sinner out there. The other side, well, God's not just. Obviously, he's not just because the wicked, those who are doing wrong, are getting by with it, and God's not hitting them with a bolt of lightning. 
Matter of fact, when I look at the evil people out there, they seem to be prospering. They're making big money on those movies they're making. Okay, whatever. All right. But see, this implies, their accusation implies that God is not good. Not just not good, they're accusing him of calling, you know, seeing evil as good. But really, they're saying, God, you don't care. You don't care about what's going on. Okay? And God, if you're, you just lack the power, the ability to do anything, or you just won't. That's their options. God, you either can't do this. You don't care to do this. You don't worry about it. Or you're just not just. They're all accusations against God. And by the way, you can go out right now and do your thing on the computer and do a search, and, and you'll see that same question is still there today. They don't understand when they see evil, suffering, difficulty in the world, therefore there can't be a good, all-powerful God. It's a common question, is it? It didn't stop there. It's something that's carried into our world today. Okay, God responds to their accusations. We know it's God because he says, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, I've said, when we've talked about that, that's mentioned many times here. And the only couple places more is in Isaiah and Jeremiah in the, in the Bible. And those are a lot larger books. This is the response. Oh, okay, here's what the Lord's going to say. I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear a way before me. This is the first of two messengers in the passage. The other one is the messenger of the covenant. But this one we know is John the Baptist, because Jesus said so. And, and it's in all four Gospels, but Matthew eleven ten. if you want to go there, Jesus actually quotes this passage to speak about John the Baptist. Okay, and Isaiah 43, I think it is. So, so we know he's there, in, in Isaiah 40 and 3, John 1 and 23, Matthew 11, Mark 1, Luke, okay. So I'm not making this part up, all right. So we know the one who is speaking here, since the one John the Baptist came to clear the way for is Jesus, according to Jesus' own words. You've got to understand, I am going to send a messenger, and he will clear the way for me, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Oh, does anybody else get it besides me? Jesus is Yahweh of hosts. If that's John the Baptist, which Jesus says it is, that me there, who is the Lord of hosts, is Jesus. Well, the Bible doesn't teach the divinity of Jesus. Well, then you just aren't looking. Because that passage is about Jesus, and who is saying that? Who's the me that's saying that? The Lord of hosts. Okay? And they're the same in being, distinct in persons. But here's the big part is Jesus is, in this case, the me is Yahweh, Jehovah, that Hebrew word that was given to Moses, the name of God, at the burning bush. It's where Jesus, they want to stone him before Abraham was, I am. That's the word he uses right there. And so they go to stone him because he calls himself God. Okay? But we have this other one, which we'll talk about. It was the messenger of the covenant. That phrase is used nowhere else in the Bible. Okay? There's nothing in there to tell us that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist isn't the messenger of the covenant. He was a messenger sent to clear the way for Jesus Christ. So that's the first prophecy or prediction is I, God, is going to send a messenger who's going to clear away for me, God, Jesus. Here's the second one. The Lord whom you seek, 
will suddenly come to his temple. Now, there's some consternation, debate over this, okay? But we already saw in the previous chapter when that, that temple was the people of God. And I showed you scriptures where they were called the temple of God. In the New Testament, we are the temple of God, all right? But here in particular, it's Israel will suddenly come to his temple, whether that's the literal one uh, and not. Uh, I'm not going to get into that because I don't think it changes what God is saying. But the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight, he is coming, says the Lord. Now, this is what's called a chiasm. And you're going, what? It's a literary device, particularly in, in Hebrew, okay, um, where this re- repetition in this pattern, often it goes like this, and then it sort of switches the order. So you see it again in this particular. He will come suddenly. In this next statement, he comes is at the end of the statement. You see that? So he comes here, all right? Who's he? The messenger. The one who you are seeking, in whom you delight. These two statements, if I could draw arrows for you, okay? It's, it's not a complex thing. It's just restating it in another way to make an emphasis, okay? In this particular case, that emphasis is placed on the fact of certainty. That's what they're trying to say. He is really going to come, Really? The guy whom you seek, uh, the guy whom you delight, he is going to come. That messenger of the covenant, he is going to come. He comes. That's sort of the point. Okay? Who is it? The one whom you seek. All right? In particular, in this case, who are they seeking? A God of justice. That's what, in this case, they're particularly seeking. It is a God that will show himself just to the wicked, if they only knew what they were seeking. They want him to come and establish justice. They thought that a Messiah was going to come and get the bad guys, bless them, and give them all this blessing. But it also says this, that he will come pithom in the Hebrew. That is unexpectedly, surprisingly. It's not quickly. That's not the word here. There's another word for that. But suddenly. okay, And and not surprising in the sense that you you don't know, like you know it's your birthday, right? But then you go home and everybody hides behind everything, you turn on like, surprise, right? Well, you knew it was your birthday. You knew the date. But, but suddenly all these people pop out from behind the furniture, turn the light on, whatever it is. So I want to make that clear. The word here literally means surprisingly, unexpectedly, okay? In spite of the preparation of the forerunner who came. All right? Besides all the hints that it, they were, had a surprise birthday party for you, you were still surprised. You, you see what I'm saying? I, maybe that's a bad analogy. Okay. Um, Zechariah 4 sort of speaks of this idea when he says he will come to his temple. I believe that is his people and a location in the sense of Israel. But again, Zechariah 4 speaks uh, of all the nations that are literally coming against Israel. And it says this in verse 3 and 4a. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. And on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will split in two. Okay? This is where one of those passages that talks about the second coming. Now some argue, does he literally split the Mount of Olives? It's not the point, at least not here. And if you've ever seen pictures of Jerusalem... 
if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, which is a big giant graveyard now, okay, you can look right over this way and you'll see what was called the Temple Mount. Just below that is you'll see the portion of Nehemiah's wall and the stairs that David had built up. I'd shown you pictures of that before. So, so the Mount of Olives is very relevant to where they've been standing in the work of Nehemiah as far as actual location goes. Uh, and this messenger of the covenant's going to covenant's going to come. Now, here's the part about a covenant. You can look at Deuteronomy 28 and so on. There's two parts of a covenant. The blessings and the curses. If you, if you do what I tell you, here's what happens. If you don't do what I tell you, here's what happens. The problem is with the Israelites here are thinking, well, because we're back and the temple's rebuilt, we are going to get all the blessings. They forgot this part. If you... They, they were really expecting this to come. No different than Jesus' first coming. So many expected him to come and defeat all the bad guys, the people they perceived as bad guys, and bring blessings to all of them. Most scholars feel this was one of Judas's problems, as he said, this ain't happening. He began to doubt. I'm not saying he was never a true believer, but in that Old Testament sense that he was talking about. G. Vernon McGee, how many of you guys know who he is? Yeah, you can get his commentary audible online today, and this comes from his commentary in Malachi. This message of the covenant is the Lord Jesus, but this passage hasn't anything to do with his first coming. This message, a messenger of the covenant is the Lord, but this passage hasn't anything to do with that, rather his second coming. So you have... This first coming, the messenger came and announced his first coming, but then he begins to talk about this messenger of the covenant and something he does when he comes this time. And um, I think that I need to explain to you uh, something that happens when we look at Scripture, in particular when we look at prophecy, okay? In particular, prophecy concerning this period of time in Israel's history, okay? Uh, I, I call it... Um, two-phase fulfillment of prophecy. Not every prophecy, but a lot of prophecy has a two-phase fulfillment, and I'll give you examples of that in a minute. The first fulfillment is usually only partial, part of the prophetic message. And then there's a second part, which is, I'll go out on the limb here and say, always has to do with Jesus and his kingdom. Um, and you could look at a commentary by Charles Feinberg, um, he, I, I think he was one of the guys, the original on the team, that translated the Greek to the, or in the, uh, no, the Greek and the Hebrew to the NASB Bible that we have today, okay, a scholar. And he argues that, in particular, this is really true of stuff about the Babylonian captivity, the return to Jerusalem, and all that kind of stuff. Let me give you a biblical example so you don't think I'm just making this up. Jesus himself. He, he is in the synagogue. It's his turn to read okay, from the scrolls. He reads, And the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me to... You guys come on. Yeah. Preach the good news, that's right, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Right? He stops mid-sentence. Mid-verse. If he'd have kept on reading, he said, and this is the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. 
Jesus says, when he finished that first part, stops there and says, today, this part's fulfilled in you. Not the vengeance of our God part. So even Jesus, there's a break right here. There's a partial here right now, and there's another piece coming. Okay? Isaiah 9, and you guys will recognize this out of chapter six or verse, chapter 9, verse 6. And, and there will be no end to the increase of his government, or peace, and his throne of David over his king, and he will establish it upon, excuse me, establish it, and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. For then, on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord host will accomplish this. The Lord sends a message against Jacob. It falls on Israel and all the people. Just before that, by the way, you have you know, that whole thing about Jesus being born. There'll be no end or no increase of his government. Did Jesus establish a government the first time? Okay, just checking. Some people argue what that is. But if you keep reading all the way down to verse 18, for the wickedness burns like fire. It is consumed. It consumes briars and thorns. It will also set thickets and forests to flame. And you're going to say, what? Well, we verse 19. By the wrath of the Lord of hosts. Who's the other guy that uses this term all the time? Isaiah. Okay is burned, and the people are like fuel to the fire. Okay, so we have this prophecy of Jesus' birth, that is government, but then there's also this judgment thing that happens here. You can also look at Joel 2, 28 and 32, which is fulfilled in Acts 2, partially. The sun and the moon, sun and, the moon and the stars did not turn black on the day of Pentecost. Okay, and that's addressed also. Jeremiah 31 through. 31 through 34, Isaiah 7, 10 through 16. There are all these kind of things. It's clear as a bell. You can read them and go, partial? About, but then there's something still yet to be fulfilled. And I, again, I use Jesus as an example of that. And many people argue that's what we're seeing right here. You're seeing part of a prophecy, the messenger sent before him, the John the Baptist part. But then you got this part of God being the judge. Uh, not, not the Savior part, not the dying on the cross thing. There's a space of time in there. Okay? And as we move on, then God directly addresses, okay, where is this God of justice? And listen to this. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? Uh, let me see. Shepherds and wise men. and uh, In the first one, right? First, but this is saying something severe. Who's going to be able to stand when he comes this time? This is Pastor Randy Reams, and I want to thank you for joining us today for Truths from God's Unchanging Word. This broadcast is a ministry outreach of Kindred Bible Church in Nampa, Idaho. And if you'd like to hear this message in its entirety or other messages, just visit kindredbible.org forward slash media. And there you can also subscribe to the podcast. If you're being ministered to by this broadcast, I'd like to ask you to consider financially supporting this ministry. Giving is easy. Just go to kindredbible.org forward slash give. There you can make a one-time gift or you can choose to become a monthly supporter. But if you prefer, you can send your gift to KBC PO Box 32, Nampa, Idaho 83653. 
Your prayers, words of encouragement, and financial support helps ensure that this broadcast will continue to be heard in your region and around the world. Again, I'd like to thank you for listening to Truths from God's Unchanging Word.